This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for listening. It's funny how your perspective changes as you go through different phases of life. For a number of years, I was determined that the only measure of success that really mattered was uh, professional life. Then for a number of years, I thought that success could best be measured in the kind of impact that you were having on your community. And then for a while, I thought your success could be measured by the people around you, the character of the folks around you, the joy that you bring to their lives and the uh, enlightenment that you get from them. Well, all of that changed a year ago. As of a year ago, my entire perspective was warped because my wife gave birth to our son, Carmine. And now the only thing I think about in the morning, in the afternoon, and uh, right before I go to bed is what kind of person my son is going to be. And that's why uh, whenever I come across some advice on how to raise, uh, how to raise a child into a functioning, productive member of society who's happy, content, smart, and is a well-balanced person, I run to that. And I was very eager to read Claire Nader's book, uh, not only because she's an incredibly well-respected social scientist who's an incredibly accomplished person herself, but because her book, You Are Your Own Best Teacher, Sparking, Sparking the Curiosity, Imagination, and Intellect of Tweens, is one of the best guides to raising a really wonderful person that I've ever come across. Uh, Dr. Claire Nader, it's great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Um, Why did you write this book? Uh, You have been writing and researching and studying a number of different things for literally decades. Why write this book? Why now? Well, because the corporate or commercial pressures coming down on our children daily, some five to six to seven hours, in front of the iPhone alone is relentless. And the corporate hucksters are radically bypassing parents and directly marketing to these youngsters such things as junk food, other harmful products, violent programming, and so on. And the Internet giants cunningly are tempting, then they're seducing, and then they're addicting these kids into the Internet virtual gulag, separating them from families, community, nature, 
in short, from the realities they must learn to face as they grow older. It's accurate to say, I think, that these companies are abducting these children, commercializing their private information for huge profits. Can you imagine that? Oh, and it unfortunately, never stops. Unfortunately, you don't have to imagine it because it's uh, all too evident on a daily basis. I really enjoyed the documentary that uh, you're featured in, but that was about your brother a few years ago, An Unreasonable Man, because that documentary, um, you and your brother and others that are interviewed uh, talk about the kind of parents your parents were, and they seem to be incredibly forward-thinking people and utilizing a lot of strategies which weren't necessarily um, the norm uh, for parents of that time. I'm wondering if you could talk about what your own parents did right and what lessons people like me can learn from them. Well, first of all, they never talked down to us. They talked to us as they talked to other people. They didn't say we were babies or kids. or We never had baby talk, but we were joyous. I mean, my parents were, my mother especially, because she had us every minute of the day. Dad was working. And uh, she had a way with children that that just uh, brought out the best in you. And they never talked down to us. It was really wonderful. They, their voices didn't change. And But they still raised us. They didn't think we were adults. So we had the best. Ralph was often asked, uh, Frank, what got you into your line of work? And he said, well, the short answer is I was lucky in my choice of parents. <laughs> and I think all of us were. Uh, I, I can certainly see family. that. If, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Claire Nader, the author of the book, You Are Your Own Best Teacher. And it has a lot of great strategies for sparking the curiosity and imagination of tweens. But uh, to be frank, I think there are a lot of tips in this book that are good for adults as well. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Nader, I was I was really uh, disheartened to see a story on 60 Minutes last Sunday where one of the folks profiled talked about the difference between American children and Chinese children. And, and, and this person said that a recent survey showed that if you asked most American children what they want to be when they grow up, their answer is a social media influencer. And most Chinese children, their answer is an astronaut. And it really does make you wonder about the future of a society where the generation of young people, their number one aspiration is to be getting likes and retweets on social media, doesn't it? Yes, I think that's very, very, very problematic, dangerous, actually. And the way you, the way you try to uh, resist, uh, which is the reason I wrote the book, this is a defense, really, is to talk within the family, increase family discussions, so you get all levels of, of. Uh, what can I say, of wisdom, of experiences. It's, and it isn't just your mother and father. It's your aunts and uncles and cousins who are older. And it's important to, to know that you can um, raise kids in a family, anchor them. You're really anchoring them in good family discussions. 
One of the things that we're also seeing is pretty alarming levels of stress, anxiety, drug use, and all sorts of other negative behaviors among both teenagers and tweens. In your view, is this due in part to, or in large part, to the uh, addiction that a lot of young people have to their electronic devices and to their screens? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We Now, the the, uh, the the new book by Susan Lynn, Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech is the answer, you know, big business, big tech, and the lives of children. It is a wonderful book about the problem. The difference with my book is I'm speaking directly to them to equip them to defend themselves. So she is reading the book herself now, my book, and they complement each other. Mm. Very I know. I look forward to reading that book as well. You spend a lot of time talking about the dangers of young people living in this virtual reality world. Um, whenever I've talked about similar issues in the past, there are always parents whose children are using a lot of these screens, and they talk about how effective some of these uh, games are in terms of increasing cognition of young people, how, uh, how effective they are at uh, teaching young people technology. Speak to those parents in our audience that might view their children engaging in uh, virtual reality and other similar, um, similar things on their devices, and they view that as a positive. Explain to them why maybe it's not. Well, uh, if you're raising kids today, you have youngsters like you just had, uh, and they're going to get older. They are. uh, They have to watch themselves. They themselves are using these devices. I remember um, waiting in a dentist's office for for my appointment. In walks a mother, very upscale, a mother and two children, young boys. They sat down. And immediately, each one of them brought out their device, their iPhone, and they were in their own world. They weren't talking to each other or anything. I was amazed. But that was just so perfect. What I do when children are, I I certainly wasn't going to go and sit and talk to them, but when I'm standing in a grocery line and I catch the eye of a child who's kind of... uh, fidgeting around, waiting for the mother to finish paying for the goods and so on, uh, I catch their eye. And once they know I've seen them, you've got them. They'll talk to you. (laughs) It's fascinating. Try it. What is the solution, uh, either for adults that find themselves perpetually holding one of these smartphones in their hand and uh, looking looking at it either for entertainment or because that's what their job requires, or for a, a young person, the kind of 9 to 13-year-old that you wrote your book for. How do we turn the ship around? How do you turn the ship around? Well, you often see them walking home from school looking down at their, at their iPhone. And so when I, I take every opportunity, this is not a, this is not a solution. But you have to do what you what you can to um, to what can I say to remind them that there is a world out there that has nothing to do with this phone. You know, if I thought 
if I was really uh, trying to have a class, I think I would uh, take the children out to a garden, have them dig in the soil and put their hands in the soil to give them a sense of the reality that they should be looking at. Nature, for example. Grow something. Contribute to your family dinner. That's I think, would have a great drawing away from the machine. One of the things fact, that I really, I I, I, I'm certain that uh, that it would, and it's not uh, when you digging in the dirt is not necessarily the kind of uh, the kind of thing that most people would think of. So I'm I'm glad that you mentioned that. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book, though, is you took a lot of um, very accomplished people throughout history and you focused on their own experiences in their youth. One person that you profile uh, to some extent is uh, Benjamin Franklin. Now, a lot of us think of Benjamin Franklin as an inventor. We think of him as a great thinker, a great wit, a great ladies' man, a great founding father. But a lot of our remembrances of Benjamin Franklin is of him being as an older person, as a historical figure. We don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about Ben Franklin as a youth. What was Ben Franklin like as a young person? Well, he certainly was self-taught. He went uh, a couple of years. His father sent him to the Boston Latin School, but he couldn't afford it. He had too many children. So he pulled them out, and he apprenticed with his brother, who was a printer, and and then he was on his own teaching himself. So these the historical figures I take, Benjamin Franklin, Frederick Douglass, and Helen Keller, they were very self-disciplined youngsters. I took them as youngsters, not as grown-ups. And they didn't have any other choice but to teach themselves. Economically was Ben Franklin, and then the others, uh, he had to... Um, isn't um, Frederick Douglass's story amazing? It certainly is. Tell tell folks about that. Uh, Helen Keller's story was memorialized in that great film, uh, The Miracle Worker. So I think a lot of folks might be familiar with her, maybe less so with Frederick uh, Frederick Douglass. Well, I want to say something about Helen Keller. She she got to be known because of her disability, so called, but she was much more than that. She was much more than the the film. She went on to, all of them, by the way, all three of them took care of their immediate problems and solved them and so on. But all of them went on to talk about and work on social problems of the society they lived in. Isn't that interesting? It, it certainly is. And uh, it's when you look at where Frederick Douglass came from, as uh, as humble as you can imagine, he was also an autodidact, similarly self-taught, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, he had to do it to get freedom. I mean, the way mm -hmm. he taught himself how to read the letters, it's amazing, really amazing when you think of it. And you then spend... became a great orator for, for abolitions, abolitionists. Yep. It is an in incredibly impressive story. And uh, you spend a, a lot of time 
on the importance not only of having young people connect with nature, but of having young people engage in physical activity. You talk about the importance of physical education. And Theodore Roosevelt, over 100 years ago, made some similar points when he was encouraging uh, younger folks, especially boys, to engage in what he called the strenuous life. Explain to parents why that is so important. Why is physical activity and getting young people engaged in physical activity so important to their development as a person? Well, first of all, young people need to move. Absolutely, they need to move. They can't just sit. Find a child who just sits. I think that would be a problem. So they have to move. And when Jay Matthews did an op-ed on this book, he picked the topic of physical education and has said what he thought of it. To think that the schools are not having physical education is to know that there's a great ignorance among the old among the teachers. You have to have physical education. I remember when I was in school myself, I wanted to move. I couldn't sit all day. So we had recess, called it recess at that point, and mm. played. And when you play with your peers, You teach each other things. You teach being careful. You teach not to hurt. You just think of all the things you learned when you were playing as a child yourself. One of the things that I um, also enjoyed about your book, as you're giving advice to tweens themselves, you're encouraging them to ask a few very important questions. And one of the one of the best questions that I think there is for anybody to ask, but especially young people, is the question of what if. What sort of possibilities does that question open up for young people and even for adults? What if? Oh, my gosh. It, it makes your imagination on, puts your imagination on fire. Because that's what it is. You're stimulating your imagination. What if everybody was white? What if everybody was black? What if everybody was, uh, you know, there were no, uh, uh, all the different kinds of humanity there is. And the story about um, the musician who said that when he was black, a black child, that he said his 10-year-old, when he was, um, uh, when the white children were kind of going after him, he said, "My my ten uh, year old mind didn't couldn't understand why they didn't like me when they didn't know me." Remember that? I do, I I do, and uh, a similarly important question, and uh, one of the things that uh, I learned about Larry King from his former producer when he passed away was he viewed this as the most important question he asked in any interview, and uh, I've tried to emulate this to some extent, and she said the most important question that Larry King asked was, why? And that's a question that you're encouraging a lot of young people to ask, why? Yeah. Well, they, they... They normally ask why. That's why we need them. These assets they have, just because of their age group, we need in, in, among the adults. 
So I usually say the assets they have of the practical idealism, by the way, that is a very important characteristic they have. They have imagination, curiosity, and intellect, and so on. But when they ask why, you you open up all kinds of things. How do people, parents, um, others, enrich their dinner table discussions so that uh, they can teach young people how to think in a provocative way and think in a way that will inspire in them a curiosity and an imagination. Uh, One of the things that I learned in that documentary, An Unreasonable Man, is that was integral to your upbringing and your brother's upbringing was how your father framed certain questions. Uh, He wouldn't just ask, what did you do in school today? He would ask, um, what did you learn to think about and things of that nature? How do yes. those of us that are parenting young children engage in a similarly provocative level of dinner table conversation? Well, you, you, there's no, um, my mother used to say when she was asked by uh, a colleague of my sister's who's a child psychologist at Berkeley, she, she, she wanted to know how mother raised and what she thought and all that. And finally, my mother said to her, Sue, what you have to understand is there are no pattern. There's no one pattern for everybody. There's no one pattern for all your children. They're different. They're different, even though they have the same mother and father. And um, so it's... um, we, We were... We were taught never to run away from from an, a difference in opinion when you're talking and differing, and that was important. If you had an, a viewpoint and data to back it up, and then you got cornered by better questions from your siblings or your parents or something. You were not allowed to run for it and say, oh, okay, all right, hmm. let's stop. Let's go do something else. You have to answer. That's very important. And, oh, it certainly is. And it's one that, uh, uh, that it's a skill that I've been forced to adapt to on the radio when a caller uh, makes a, a point that, uh, that I may try to evade uh, by hanging up on them. And uh, it's certainly not a great long-term strategy to handle it that way. Uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. Claire Nader. Her book is You Are Your Own Best Teacher, Sparking the Curiosity, Imagination, and Intellect of Tweens. It's a great book uh, for both adults and for young people. And one of the other strategies that you emphasize in this book, Dr. Nader, is the ability to discern propaganda and become alert to propaganda. And that's something that I've learned is a big problem with adults and young people. How do folks know whether the news, the commentary, the entertainment, uh, the kitchen table conversation that they're experiencing is propaganda? or just plain old regular information? Well, you have to, uh, it depends on how you read. You have to read widely uh, different viewpoints, and that will give you, that. and who you, who you trust, uh, who makes the better argument, who, uh, who is solid in the way they're arguing their point. 
you can't, uh, there's a lot of, we call it misinformation. Well, that's intentional many times. So you you have to be able to uh, read good writing, good thoughts. Why do you say, I would like to subscribe to this magazine and not that? Well, if you just look for people who agree with you, that's not good for you. So you, you look for good arguments that are made. Even if they are not your arguments, you may want to respond to them. And that's what makes people think and argue and and hopefully um, good good things come out come out of that argument that you're not just uh, shooting off your mouth. In my interviews with your brother over the years, uh, one of the things that I've always been very pleased by is how many conservatives begin listening to the interview, determine that they're not going to like anything that he says. And then when he's talking about uh, maybe it's unwise to have a cashless society or uh, when he's mentioned the corporate assault on our children, something that you focus on a great deal in the book. A lot of the most enthusiastic supporters of what he's saying happen to be conservatives who might have viewed his uh, politics as light years apart from them. Uh, this yes. book that you've written, this is something that is valuable to people irrespective of their politics, right? You don't have to be yeah. a conservative or a liberal or an independent to like this book. Yeah, we all bleed the same way. <laughs> That's what I have like to say. It's very true. Very true. I um I have the Nader family cookbook, which is filled with all sorts of recipes from uh, your parents' restaurant. And uh, on my agenda for the weekend is the lentil and soybean soup. I'm curious, out of all the recipes in this book, do you have a favorite that you like to make? Oh, I I like good food. I don't have favorites, although. People do, of course. There are things I enjoy more than others. But I like to think I can eat anything, and I'm glad to have food to eat. We were, we never were allowed to be picky. We ate what my parents ate, and they ate what we ate. wasn't allowed to be picky. You, you can, um, as you raise your child, Frank, you can make life a lot easier if you give them the, the information right away that you're not going to, that you eat what they eat and they eat what you eat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So not, not I have this favor and then the mother goes crazy trying to cook for everybody in the same meal. Right, or offering uh, chicken nugget alternatives if uh, if the child doesn't like whatever uh, whatever the, yes, everybody exactly. else is being served. Yes, exactly. You got your finger right on it. Um, uh, Claire Nader, and no it processed is, food. You cook from, cook from scratch. It is uh, a real treat to talk with you. I really enjoyed this book. I'm hoping everybody will check out. You're your own best teacher. As I said, there's not just great educational strategies for young people. There's some great ones for adults as well. It's a real treat yeah, to talk with you. I will say Thank this: you. you can get it if you go to inspiring inspiringtweens.com inspiringtweens.com uh, it is uh, available on there the book is your you are your own best teacher claire nader thank you so much
Thank you very much, Frank. Good luck if you with want, the new style. Thank you. I appreciate that. I will. Uh, I, I will. I'll need it. Believe me. <laughs> yeah. If you want to, uh, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, please uh, give me a call. One eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We'll continue on the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. 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 